You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Special word for our kids this morning as we get started. I got a word for you here at the beginning, and then in a little bit, we're going to talk about this lady in the Old Testament named Jezebel. And at the end, we're going to talk about the planet Venus. This has been a difficult season for the elderly, the weak in our society. It's been a challenging time for kids too. And uh, we're aware of the challenges with not having a nursery. And kids have been out of sorts over the summer, doing services outside and all that. It's been a tough time for kids as well. And I want you to know, kids, we love you. You mean a lot to our church. And one little reminder in this text even as it's perhaps a little bit of a stretch. This is the smallest of the seven towns in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation here. Smallest of the seven. And this is the town, this is the church in the town to which Jesus gives most attention. This is the longest of the seven letters to the smallest of the towns and probably the smallest of the churches Little is known about Thyatira because little exists still that mentions it. So let's not assume that insignificant in human evaluations of size and significant is the same evaluations to Jesus and to our church as well. And think about this letter is this is the fourth, this is the middle of the seven which is important in the ancient way of structuring sequences the middle has a particular place whether it's a chiasm that comes from the Greek word chi and x where it goes in and out to the middle the chiasm or if you think of it as concentric circles we're right here in the middle this is significant which might show us that we're on to perhaps the main message of the seven in summary and we've seen this structure in the letter so far It goes like this, the first and last letters are to the worst churches of the seven. Then the second and sixth are to what seem to be the healthiest. And then the middle three are mixed bag situations. There's a commendation to give and there's a correction to make. And that's what we're going to see this morning, this letter to Thyatira, a commendation and a corrective. One scholar writes that... uh, All of the letters here in Revelation 2 and 3 deal with the theme of faithfulness to Christ in the midst of an often threatening pagan culture. All seven. In the midst of a pagan culture. And this is particularly apparent in Thyatira. This is the kind of church that is especially prone to compromise with surrounding society. It's the kind of church prone to tolerate sin in its midst in a way that it should not. It is a manifestly loving church. That's a good thing. The church in Thyatira seems to be admirably positioned in the world, which can present the threat of becoming of the world. And remember, this is Jesus speaking to the churches in these letters. Verse 19, I know your works, he says. Verse 20, I have this against you. Verse 23, I am he who searches mind and heart. Verse 25, until I come 
and several more. That's just a taste. I, 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 over and again as Jesus speaks to this church. So let's see this morning what Jesus himself says to this church. You have three things in particular. You can summarize them with praise, peril, and promise. That's what we'll look at here. Praise, peril, and promise. So number one, praise. He commends their advance in acts of love. He commends their advance in acts of love. This is verse 19. Look there with me, verse 19. I know your works, Jesus says, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So this church is off to a good start. It has made progress. Its latter works, in other words, its most recent works are exceeding how it started, its former works. And churches, not just individual Christians, grow and mature. He's talking to the church here. As a church, they have grown and matured in their love toward each other and toward the community. May God make it so for us at City's Church. May it not be that as we age into our seventh year, that it would be said that our former works would exceed our latter, most recent works. But let's pray that we would be like Thyatira in this sense, and that we would be like a lot of churches that are often known as liberal churches in a certain sense, that our latter works would exceed the former that we would grow in our love and not regress. That we would have hearts of love for each other and our neighbors and our city with tangible acts of love to meet the needs of others in our city in the name of Jesus. And there's another word of commendation here to the church at Thyatira. It's not just one. Verses 24 and 25. What we'll see here is that some in Thyatira, perhaps particularly the leaders in the church, which is scary, are falling into error. But there are others in the church who are not compromising. There are good, faithful, uncompromising Christians in this church. Jesus has kept them. He's kept them from the compromise of their church and perhaps its leaders. The Holy Spirit powerfully preserves his people even despite bad leadership. Look at verses 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, we'll get to that false teaching in a minute, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any other burden on you. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. So first, the risen Christ commends, praises, affirms the church at Thyatira for its good works, for its acts of love. This is a loving church. And that's a good thing. We don't need to be scared of being a loving church. And there are good, faithful people in the church in Thyatira, even as the leadership may be compromised. We shouldn't presume that everyone in a struggling church is as compromised as its leaders 
and perhaps its official documents. This church cares about the needs of others. This is a church that meets practical needs. Whereas with the Ephesian church, as we saw, the first letter, they did well to cross all their doctrinal T's, but they failed in practical love. And the church in Thyatira is on its game in ministries of mercy and in caring for the weak. That's to be commended. That's to be praised. And on the flip side, however, don't assume that all is well in a church because that church is active in the community. Jesus commends this church for its growth in love and he seeks to correct this church for its compromise. So number two then is the peril. There's not just the praise, there is peril here. Jesus calls out the wrong kind of tolerance. That's the peril. He calls out the wrong kind of tolerance. Verses 20 to 23. Look there with me. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. So here's the concern in verse 20. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, tolerance in and of itself is not necessarily a problem. Tolerance is not a word that we should hear as a bad word. Tolerance can be a very good thing in the right place. Keep people from dying unnecessarily. And it can be a very bad thing and produce deadly compromise in the wrong place. There is a kind of tolerance in society, in the public square, in the civic arena that allows people with different religious beliefs to live together in peace and not kill and hurt each other and respect each other as humans. And we as Christians advocate for that in society. We want to advocate for that kind of religious tolerance that the city and the state and the nation not punish or discriminate against groups for their religious beliefs unless those are demonstrably wrong, like some forms of jihad. But this distinction between the church and the city, between the church and the world, is critical to keep in mind. The problem in the church in Thyatira is their tolerance in the wrong place. They very likely are admirably tolerant of different views in town. They are in the world. It's a loving church. They are cultural affirmers and participators. They're out there doing acts of love in the city. But their wide, indiscriminate love in the world has led them to become undiscerning in the church which can happen with loving churches. 
It's a good danger to face because that means you're a loving church. May God help us face these dangers. Make us a loving church and let's combat these dangers. They are tolerating. This is their problem. They are tolerating in God's house, among God's people, what they dare not tolerate and in a leader at that. Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants, which may be literal or figurative or both. Kids, this is where we talk about Jezebel. Have you ever heard of Jezebel? Not, maybe not one of the first Old Testament characters you learn about. But eventually, if you stay with it long enough in the children's curriculum and your own Bible reading and reading through the Bible and family devotions, you're going to come across Jezebel. Here's Jezebel in Revelation chapter 2. Jezebel seems to profess the Christian faith and is teaching in the church. And the name Jezebel is symbolic here. I don't think it's actually the name of the false teacher. Maybe it's multiple false teachers. There's a symbolism here. Jezebel is proverbial for wickedness. This is a reference to one of the most evil figures in the history of Israel. Elijah is more famous. We remember Elijah and the great conflict on Mount Carmel and against the prophets of Baal. The reason Elijah has to face off with the prophets of Baal is because Jezebel and her husband Ahab let the prophets in. So Ahab was known as the most wicked king in the history of Israel to that point. And one of his great wicked acts, among others, is that he took a worshiper of Baal, B-A-A-L, he took a worshiper of Baal as his wife, the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. Her name is Jezebel. It was a marriage of compromise from the beginning. It was tolerance in the wrong place. Getting along with the Sidonians, that was just fine. Taking a Sidonian Baal worshiper as the wife of the king was tolerance in the wrong place. Jezebel worships the false god Baal, and Ahab comes to worship the false god Baal too. And Jezebel uses her power as queen, uses her influence over her husband as his wife to kill the prophets of God. And she threatens to kill the prophet Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 25 says that she incited Ahab to evil. I think that's the key for what this character Jezebel stands for. She incited her husband Ahab to evil. And in the end, Ahab and Jezebel did not escape God's judgment. God avenged the blood of his prophets, 2 Kings 9 says. Jezebel was thrown out a window and trampled underfoot in the street and dogs ate her flesh just as Elijah had prophesied. 2 Kings 9. And it's not insignificant that this so-called Jezebel in Thyatira is a woman. There are dynamics here going on between husbands and wife. 
and lady wisdom in the Old Testament is a female. God means for righteous men to listen to the wisdom and counsel of righteous women. Good women influence their husbands in spectacular ways that God designed. And Eve draws Adam into sin. And Sarah has an idea for Abraham about Hagar. And Jezebel incites her husband Ahab into evil. And a woman named Jezebel is having a negative, compromised influence seemingly on the leadership and on this church in Thyatira. And this influential woman is teaching some in the church, verse 20, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed by idols. Those are the two things. And we saw that same pair last week in the letter to Pergamum. Chapter 2, verse 14. Those are the same two temptations. Food practice, food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. And these may be the two social cultural compromises of the day in the first century. As Christianity moved out from the Jewish context into the pagan world, this is what's being hit up against over and over and again. In Acts 15, when there's the Jerusalem council, they gather together, the apostles and the elders, they hear that the Holy Spirit has been given to the Gentiles. Peter tells the story and they think, do we need to tell the Gentiles to live under the Jewish law, under the, under the Old Testament law? And they all agree, no, we don't. But they have some counsel for them in the first century. Here's what they say. This is Acts 15, 28 to 29. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, not the Old Testament law, but that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, do well, farewell. The letter from the apostles to the Gentiles. Love it. What this might mean about Thyatira is that this church is facing the characteristic temptations of the day, which should not be a surprise for the kind of church and people this is. They're in the world. They're growing in love. They're professing Christ. Yet the temptation for them is to cater to the flesh and to social pressure from the unbelieving world that is around them. And so every generation faces the question of what in culture we're to embrace and what we'll reject and stand against. And in some senses, it just gets more and more complicated than it was in Thyatira. Thyatira is a small town. And even the largest cities in the world in the first century are relatively small compared to our cities today. Life is not getting simpler. It is getting more and more complex in terms of population and in terms of our cultural tools for communication and our technology. We are coming in contact with false, compromising views over and over again. It is confusing, which is why we need each other so much. 
In the church, you are not being sent into the world of lies to figure this out all on your own. This is why we need each other. This is what we're trying to help with as pastors, to give healthy, faithful teaching that would help steer you clear of error. And we do this together in the life of the church. Don't feel like you got to figure this out on your own. Lean in here. Let's do this together. Let's avoid compromise. Consider the reality and ripples of sexual immorality today. This is directly what we face, like the church in Thyatira did. From dress and immodesty. We've become so dull to this because we've been so bombarded. To media and pornography. To expectations in dating and engagement and marriage to homosexuality and transgender. So we don't have to do a lot of application work to apply that threat. We just need to wake up to how surrounded we are in it. But what about food sacrifice to idols? I doubt any of us were tempted this week to eat food sacrificed to idols. But not eating meat at a banquet in Thyatira, a work banquet, could cost you dearly. There were economic pressures to just go along with the false religion in town. And there are increasing economic pressures on us today to go along with the false religion of secularism in our town. How often are we tempted to just go along with what society is a is serving us and asking us to affirm. Whether what our jobs pressure us to affirm or what the entertainment that we seek involves or political expectations. It was fever pitch in 2020. Whether you're all in on the right or all in on the left. Anti-racism or nationalism. Got to pick your team. Nobody can stay out. not true ask yourself what is it today for you and for us as a church that makes sin look normal and makes righteousness look strange in movies on television in sports in polite conversation We could boil it down to this, that the problem in Thyatira is what previous generations called worldliness. Compromise with the world. And what was especially dangerous is that someone in the church was teaching what was likely a sophisticated form of compromise. Perhaps she or they were calling it the deep things of God. Which may be the reason why Jesus says in verse 24 that it amounts to the deep things of Satan. Jezebel or her team was probably not calling it the deep things of Satan. Christians would be wise to that. Probably called it something else. And Jesus is saying, I'll I'll tell you what it is. That sophisticated form of compromise that isn't obvious has some Bible verses with it. 
That's the deep things of Satan. So how then does Jesus respond to this compromise? This is, this is an amazing, th- amazing thing for us to see. The compromised theology of Jezebel and the compromised tolerance of this church gets Jesus' response in two ways in verses 21 and 22. First is his patience. Don't miss this. We need to hear this. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Jesus doesn't rush to judgment. He gives time to repent. What patience, what kindness. And if he gives time to repent, should we not also? We can be so prone to snap judgments. If anybody could do snap judgments well, it would be Jesus. And he gives time to repent. How amazing. Leon Morris, Australian commentator on Revelation, he says, how amazing it is that Jesus holds out the prospect of mercy. This is to be noted throughout the book of Revelation. It is full of severe judgments. But always there is the prospect of deliverance to those who repent. And that's not to confuse patience with compromise. Patience runs its course, depending on the setting. Patience is not indefinite here. That's the second one. Second then is Christ's justice, which is never gratuitous and it's never overdone. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike your children dead. In other words, the punishment will fit the crime. The bed of sexual immorality will receive, he says, a sick bed. You want to be in bed? Make you sick. It's in the pandemic. This is like Haman who hung from his own gallows in the book of Esther. Or like Psalm chapter 7, verse 15, the wicked man makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he himself made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Christ is patient, but not indefinitely. He will in time, exact, fitting justice, which leads to the final message of Christ to this church. This is the promise. This is so good. The promise. He pledges to give his people the moon. Now, that's an expression in English, okay? Don't look for that in the text. I'll explain it. I know there's stars in there. We're going to talk about Venus now. That's my, that's my uh, colloquial way of saying it. He promises to give his people the moon. Verses 26 to 28. Um, can you believe what Jesus promises these seven churches? But because the first one's so bad, the first church is so bad, and the last one's so bad, and because there's these correctives in the three middle churches, it's very easy to, to see this tone of correction the tone of what kind of compromise is happening for these churches, and it's very easy to miss these promises. These are spectacular promises at the end of these letters. It is amazing. Ephesus, to eat of the tree of life. Smyrna, to not be hurt by the second death. 
Pergamum, hidden manna and a white stone. And now Thyatira may be the best of them all, right here in the middle with Laodicea. Laodicea is really good too. I think Pastor Kevin will have that for us in a few weeks. He says to the church in Laodicea, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne. And this is a version of it here to Thyatira in two parts. First, verse 26. Look there with me. The one who conquers and who keeps my works. That's the contrast with her works, Jezebel. In verse 22. The one who keeps my works, Jesus says, until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So Jesus, the God-man, received authority from his Father to rule over the nations. And we say at the end of our services every week, Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me. That's the authority from the Father to Jesus, the God-man. And now, this is amazing. He says he will give that authority to his people. So not only as Psalm 2 celebrates, will Jesus, the Christ, be king of the nations and rule over all peoples, but his people, he says, will rule with him. This is amazing. Not only is Psalm 2 about Jesus, Psalm 2 is also about the church. We have told our children over and over again, the Bible is not mainly about us. The Bible is mainly about Jesus. And so we, had a, we got a new family Bible, and we opened it this week. And it was on Tuesday for the first time. And six-year-old Gloria said, Daddy, can you show me the part that's about us? We've emphasized so much that it's all about Jesus. Gloria, this is a part that is about us. That we will rule with Christ over the nations. This is amazing. And it's not the best part. Verse 28. All right, kids, here we go. Verse 28. This is where we're going to talk about the planet Venus as we close. So we're coming to the table... And we're coming to the table with Venus. Verse 28. I will give him the morning star. This is Jesus' promise to those who conquer. I will give him the morning star. And maybe like me, you read this and go, morning star, what is that? I don't know. We're modern people. We live in a city. We can't even see the stars. So we don't do a whole lot of astronomy stuff. But in the ancient world... They knew what the morning star was. That's the planet Venus. And now we know very well about heliocentrism, at least within our own solar system, and the planets go around the sun. And so Venus is closer to the sun than we are. So if you see Venus in the night sky, you know the sun's got to be kind of nearby. Not as close as Mercury, but Venus then comes next. And if you see Venus, the sun is just gone or just coming. And Venus is, by far, the brightest object in the night sky other than the moon. 
but we don't see it often because it follows the sun down and it precedes the sun when the sun comes up. So that's why Venus is called the morning star, often the evening star too. Because the sun goes down, then you can see Venus for a little while before it's gone. Or in the morning, when you see Venus come up, the brightest object other than the moon in the night sky, you know the sun is coming. When you see the morning star, you know the night is almost done. Day is about to break. The sun is coming and will chase away the shadows. So the morning star is a powerful image in Scripture that with the coming of Christ, Jesus has come, the morning star has come, and the glory is coming just a little while later. And we live in that time where we have seen the morning star and the sun is about to come over the horizon. And one last thing here about the morning star. There are very few mentions of the morning star in Scripture. I think only three in the New Testament. And other than the one here, there's one other in the book of Revelation. And that's Revelation 22:16. Let me read you Revelation 22:16 as we close. I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus says he is the morning star. And what he says to the church in Thyatira is, I will give you. Not just I am the morning star. I will give you the morning star. I will give you myself. I will give you the greatest possible thing in all the universe. I will be your God and you will be my people. Your final reward is to be with the Lord. And so that's what we celebrate here week in and week out at this table. We look forward to that day when faith will turn to sight, when we will no longer see as in a mirror dimly, but we will see him face to face. And he will be ours and we will be his. And so we eat and drink with that final reward here in view. If you're with us here this morning and you'd say, Jesus is mine, and I am his. We'd invite you to eat with us. Pastors will bring around these cups. If you want to put your hands out like this, if you're going to eat with us, give it to you, we'll retain, and then we'll eat together. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.